Welcome to the Expedition Success Podcast, where we hope to elevate your mind through discussion with successful innovators, entrepreneurs, athletes, professionals, and creators on their journeys towards success. I am your host, Liam Kaufman. And I'm your co-host, Michael Setiawan. Today, we are joined by David Randage, a current board member for Springs Windows Fashions and university lecturer at the Cranert School of Management and former business president of Master Brand Inc. Welcome to the show, David. We are so excited to have you on. Uh, Liam and Michael, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, we always start back uh, back to the beginning. Uh, just tell us about your background, uh, where you grew up, and tell us about your family or just like the impact that they've had on you. Sure. Well, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and my um, my parents and grandparents were all born on the south side of Chicago, and they came from kind of a blue collar ethnic background. So work ethic was really important. I would say work was school was important, but work and getting a job early and, and working hard outside the home were real priorities. Um, my dad was the first person to go to college in the family and he went to Purdue because um, his dad was a self, my grandfather was a self-taught electrician and he wanted my dad to be an electrical engineer. So he sent him to Purdue, but I think my dad found out that electrical engineering was a little bit too much work. So he became what, what is now an, called an industrial engineer. And um, he, he was a big influence on me and, and he encouraged me to go to Purdue. So I was basically, I guess, the second guy to go to college in the family after high school. I had an uncle that served in Vietnam and then later he went like on the um, later after he got back from Vietnam. Um, so, so I came down to Purdue and, um, it worked out really good for me. I, I think, um, I was kind of predisposed to, to a technical degree and I, I took industrial management at Purdue, which is now called IBE and it turned out to be perfect for me. So was your dad like the main influence then on why you chose to go to Purdue and, and study industrial engineering? Yeah, absolutely. My, my dad, um, he was a, when I was a kid, he was a shift supervisor at a factory uh, just on the west side of Chicago. And, you know, he wasn't a, a huge, I wouldn't call it a hugely ambitious guy. Um, he, you know, he did well at Purdue. He had a good job. He um, worked at a technology company his whole life and, and was a really good provider and a really good dad. Um, kind of a middle manager and was satisfied with that. And, he was pretty savvy about the way the world works and he guided me and my two brothers to colleges and careers. So he, he figured I should be an operations leader and said, you, know, you go to Purdue and, and study this. And one of my brothers is a very successful uh, CIO in, in New York. And he sent my brother to a college to learn IT. And then my other brother, he sent to Indiana to be an accountant and he's a, he's a CFO. And so, you know, my dad was a great influence in that he kind of knew the way the world worked and he could look at his three boys and guide them to the right career choice in the right college. And none of us were very academically inclined. He just told us, go there, get out in four years and get a job. And it was just terrific guidance. And I, and when, as I teach at Purdue, 
that's what I try to do. I try to, I try in my classes to take that constructive advice. You know, I've been out in the world and I, I try to tell the students what I've learned and how they can be successful in very, very practical terms. Yeah, for our listeners who definitely don't know this, but um, David's actually one of my professors in my management class. Um, and that's one thing I've definitely noticed is that you really give a lot of great advice that relates specifically towards what we're going to use in the real world versus just stuff we'll find in school, which I found very helpful. Um, and it definitely makes sense hearing that about your dad and your brothers. Yeah. And I, you know, I had an advantage that not everybody has. Many people do. And a lot of people that went to Purdue have that advantage of, of parents that provided good guidance, but not everyone does. And, um, you know, to the extent I can pass that on, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. So, so you said your dad wasn't necessarily the most ambitious, um, but it sounds like, it sounds like his guidance is kind of what made you more ambitious. Uh, would you, would you say that that's true? That slowly with his guidance, you, you became a more ambitious person? Well, for my dad, it was all about, and my mom, and my mom was a nurse in Chicago, and both of them just wanted their kids to be independent and be able to contribute in the workforce and be happy with their lives. And you don't have to, you don't have to be at the top of the organization to be happy with your life. You just have to be a good contributor. And so they got us started that way. My dad, you know, he, he made sure he had a good balance in his life and um, he was, you know, he was a good dad and, and, and good for the family and was there when we needed him. And, you know, it's hard to do that when you're at the top of an organization, there's a lot more stress at work. You know, I, I would say, you know, and he, and he considered me and my brothers to be workaholics. He couldn't, he thought it was funny how hard we worked. Um, you know, I think he was proud of us, but he, he, he thought we were kind of half crazy. You know, for me, I was working at a gas station when I was in high school. And you don't see this anymore, but you used to have to pump the gas for people who came in and I would fix people's tires and, you know, I wore a gas station uniform and all this. And I used to notice these guys coming in to the station who had company cars and they come in with suits and ties in their company cars. And we had an account where you know, they just drive in, get anything done in their car they needed and just sign a piece of paper and drive off without paying. And I was watching these guys and thinking, wow, there's a whole life out there in these corporations of these guys that make good money and, and so on. And I was thinking, man, if I get a job at one of these places and just work harder than everybody else, I can elevate myself inside of one of those organizations and have more autonomy and independence and not be um, kind of bossed around. So that was the, that was the impression that I got when I was about 17 working at that gas station. Never forget it. So, yeah, that was one of the things I wanted to ask about. Um, we find with a lot of um, individuals who have very successful backgrounds, they have a very diverse um, range. Some of them really wanted to be successful from a young age and some of them didn't even really start until their late 20s or 30s. Um, so for you coming to Purdue, did you already know that you had that drive and that you wanted to be successful um, out of college or was it more something that kind of grew as your career progressed? 
Yeah, I realized that that day when I was 17, it, it never occurred to me before then, but that day it just kind of hit me like a lightning bolt. And I remember going home and thinking, this is really the way this is going to work. And then when I got to Purdue, um, you know, I was very determined that I would get out four years and get a job in a company and rise as far as I could in the company. And I, I never said to myself, hey, I have to be at a certain job or a certain level. I just said, I'm going to get out. I'm going to outwork my peers. I'm going to do my best. And I'm going to go as far as I, as far as my, my work ethic and my talents take me. And as long as I do my best, I'm going to be happy with the way it winds up. So how'd you get your first job out of college? And what was it? What was that job? Yeah, it was kind of, um, it was kind of a difficult year because I graduated in 83 and 82 was the second year of a terrible double dip recession. And in those days, obviously before the internet, all the, all the job postings, they used to have interviewers come to Purdue. That's primarily how people got jobs in those days. People, companies would come and interview the students. And there was a place in Stewart Center where they used to post all the interview schedules on the wall. And when I was a junior, all the seniors were getting multiple job offers. And then when I was a senior, the double dip uh, recession hit and everybody was canceling their campus visits. And you'd go down the hall in Stewart Center. It was depressing. All the halls, walls were blank because everybody was canceling. It's like, oh, man, I'm going to graduate without a job here. And I, I, I got as many interviews as I could. And long story short, I finally got my, I got a job offer as a stockbroker, but it, it really was not a good offer. So I didn't really count that as an offer. I, I got my first legitimate job offer during finals week of my senior year. So it was like a week before I was going to have to drive home. I got a job offer and I was very fortunate because it was a good company and it was kind of, you had to go in a lottery with, to get their interview. And I got picked to go in the interview just out of luck. And then I had a good interview with them. And it's a company called Armstrong, which is on the East Coast. And they were very famous. It was a big company in those days. They were very famous for building materials like flooring and, and so on. And I was just so happy to get that job that you know, I, I just felt like, man, I'm going to be really loyal to this company because I came so close to having to go home without a job. And anyway, the first job was in a huge old factory and I was a, I was a planner and I scheduled the production lines and ordered all the raw materials and managed the distribution of the products around the United States. And I was just really, really grateful to get that. Yeah. So you mentioned a loyalty, um, in specific, um, I know with our generation, I feel like I see a lot less of that where they kind of want to try out tons of different things and not really stick with one um, specific job or industry for an extended period of time. Um, but what I've noticed kind of looking through your career and your past is that you spent a lot of time with um, different companies and really getting building yourself within those companies. So was that something you knew you always wanted to do or did it just kind of happen working within these companies? Yeah, I, you know, and first of all, I'd say, Liam, that the jury's kind of out on whether the younger generations are less loyal. I, there, I've seen different data there. I know people say that, 
But, you know, generally young people should try different things. So I would encourage that. But for me, I was just fortunate to get on with a good company in the beginning. And I was grateful for that. And I do value loyalty. I value loyalty towards my employer. I value uh, loyalty towards my peers, my subordinates, my bosses. I mean, those are the people you're going to battle with. And, and loyalty is big for me. I, I worked for two corporations my whole life. Now, later I wound up at a corporation that had lots of subsidiaries. So I was pretty independent as president or CEO of these subsidiaries. But my career was still a little unusual in that, you know, I was with two corporations the whole time. And I, I'm really grateful for that. I you know, just the relationships and the knowledge you build up over that. So what I would encourage young people to do is try different things, but try to tap some roots into some places and, and, and build relationships and loyalty. And you know, I think I think you'll find a lot of satisfaction with, with building on that. I've, I've known people that just keep skipping around and they become quite shallow and superficial in their skills, to be honest. Okay, so what what were your biggest takeaways from your first job um, as a I guess as the planner of the factory? Yeah, I didn't know how to manage my time. I I was I shouldn't probably say this, but I was one of those students who could kind of get by by reading the textbook and 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 cramming for finals, and I was pretty disorganized. And when it came, it, all of a sudden. If I made a mistake, the factory would go down, right? If we ran out of a raw material or if I scheduled a line wrong or something. I mean, I had a lot of people watching what I was doing and, and I had to be super, super detail oriented. And I didn't know how to do that. And just the pressure that I felt was was unbelievable. So I, I had to learn a system or keeping track of my, my calendar and the way I did my job and managing my time. It was taking me many, many hours to get my work done because I didn't know how to prioritize. So um, that's one of the things I talk to students about is time management and prioritization and organization. You can learn that in college. And so for you having that job and still not have, having developed those skills as much um, in college, was it kind of just the experience of working that allowed you to kind of figure that out and build that time management that you talk about? Yeah. And, and people put pressure on me. Like if I made a mistake, a production supervisor would dress me down out on the floor in front of a bunch of people or a customer service manager would yell screaming at me. And some of the things I hadn't been trained on because it was on the job training, but some of it was because I didn't have that sense of organization. So under pressure, um, and under, you know, while being criticized, I had to, I had to figure it out on my own. And I, if I had to do it again, I would have worked a little bit on that in college. No, that makes sense. Um, so then after your first job, um, I don't know when specifically you actually, you moved outside of the U S and we're working outside of the U S, but I know you've been outside of the U S quite a bit. Um, and that's kind of unique. I think, I think a lot of people, will just work in the U.S. their entire lives or the country they were born in. So that's definitely a very unique perspective. Um, so how was it not only being in other countries, but actually working in separate cultures? And how has that kind of helped define who you are and how has it affected your career? Yeah, it's a 
great series of experiences for me. I lived overseas for 14 years, um, seven in England and four in Germany and three or four in China. And so, you know, for me, it was a career opportunity. You know, I, I was coming of age when globalization was taking off and I was a manufacturing guy. Manufacturing is, has been starting to get, you know, sidetracked a little bit. Like now, now the whole rage is tech. But when I was coming up, the rage was globalization. And so being able to jump on that accelerated my career because I went, you know, I took opportunities in the hot spot of the economy. And, you know, doing it helped me really understand how to work with people because, you know, I'll give you an example. When I was sent to China in the mid nineties, it was a, it was a developing country, nothing like it is today. And I was told to go over and start up a new factory in Shanghai. And I thought this is going to be great. And then I realized, holy mackerel, I don't even know how to speak Chinese. And so you become very dependent on others around you, which is what really a manager needs to do. Manager needs to be humble and understand what they don't know, and then bring in lots of good people and, and give them the opportunity to shine. And I certainly had to do that in China because I couldn't have done it. So did you actually have to like learn the languages of the different countries you worked in? Um, well, I learned you, like- German. I learned German. Um, you know, I wouldn't say I was great at it, but I could run meetings and I could do presentations and so on, and I could get by day to day. And I learned enough of Chinese to get around. The problem is that with English, everybody else in the world studies English. So I would be in Germany and going out on the weekend and start practicing my German. And as soon as people heard I was American, they all switched to English because they wanted to practice on me. (laughs) Um, So a few years after college, uh, you decided to go and pursue your MBA from Mercer University. Uh, can you talk about why you made that decision and how getting an MBA ultimately helped your career? Well, I knew I wanted to be a senior manager and I felt like I needed to get an MBA so I wouldn't be left out. And Mercer's a good school. It's, it's, it's a good school and I'm glad I went there. It's not Harvard. I don't know if I would have gotten into Harvard, but I was working as a production supervisor in a 24-7 operation, and I was probably working 60 hours a week, and I just didn't have time to travel. I didn't have enough money to quit my job, so I went to the best college I could that was commutable from work, and so I then I, I got my MBA at night, and it took a couple of years, but that was two years of just pretty much constant work. Glad I did it, though. I'm glad I got it done. Somebody told me, get it done before you're 30, so I did that. So you were working 60-hour weeks, and then at night you were getting your MBA. Yeah, it was punishing. What was funny was when I got done, I was all of a sudden like, wow, I got the weekend free. What what did I used to do on the weekend? I forgot. (laughs) Jeez. um, I mean, that that definitely shows you you got your time management together if you were able to kind of balance all that. Well, funny enough, I got straight A's as an MBA almost, and I didn't in college. And the reason was because I had learned how to organize my time. And that's, that's why I realized that if, if, if you're good at organizing your time, you can do very, very well in college. And I did well as an MBA, even though I was working so hard. 
So then like what were some of those things that you learned how to better manage your time and, and kind of organize yourself? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I became good at lists, right? Make a list of what's important. And, you know, what are the 10 things I got to do this week and put them in priority order? And if, if, I've got, if I've got a key meeting at work and if I've got an exam at school, those are up there in the top five. And you're never going to get everything done, but make sure you get that top 10 list done and make sure you're prepared. You don't just check it off that you got it nailed. So, so now after you've had your MBA, um, your next position was being a managing director at Armstrong Ceilings Europe, which was, uh, as you mentioned, based in London. Uh, what did you learn from this position? How did it help you, I guess, move forward in your career? Yeah, so that, Michael, was the first time that I was running a business. And so I was sent to London and I was reporting back to the corporate chief back in the United States. And so I'm sitting in London with what's called full P&L responsibility, meaning the, the full profit and loss statement or income statement. And so I had sales and marketing and product innovation manufacturing, IT, finance, everything reporting into me. So, you know, I had to learn how to coordinate a staff and they were all older than me, right? So that you got all these vice presidents running those different functions. They're all older than me. And it's, they're kind of like, okay, who's this younger guy? And by the way, why is this American coming over? So um, I had to learn how to coordinate a team like that. And then I had big customer accounts, really big customers that really determined how well my business was going to perform. And so I had to learn how to keep those customers happy through through service and, and building the relationship. So so you were running the London branch of a company? It was the European branch, headquartered ah. in London. So I had all of Europe, Eastern Europe, like Russia, um, Africa, Middle East, and India. So it was a very big geographic territory. And in those days, Russia was booming. So I had a lot of work to do in building out a distribution system in Russia to, and we grew our business quite rapidly there. So was that, was that a big uh, jump for you from going from, I guess, managing that, that little plant, factory? Yeah, to yeah it was a really big to... jump. Yep. It was, um, you know, was, I was in my late thirties and they needed somebody to run the European operation. And I didn't have the commercial experience, meaning I didn't have sales or marketing experience. I was coming up on the op side. And typically they wouldn't give the job to somebody like me, except I had had a couple successful international assignments. So they said, okay, Dave knows how to operate overseas. Let's take a risk and throw him in there. And, and so, like I said, when I got there, I had to figure out how to keep those customers happy. And they're, they're pretty big, rough accounts. So what were some of the like specific things you were doing within that job and kind of dealing with all those different customers that you were responsible for? Well, we, we, a big one is we ship product into 23 countries. And so that was right when the internet was really becoming strong and we had to have 23 separate websites. I think it was like 14 separate languages. And we had to build all that out and be able to do it in a way that we are representing a brand consistently across all these countries and languages. And then different countries had different product requirements. Like 
certain styles were more popular, certain safety requirements. Um, Russia was, was a poor country. So while they were growing really fast, they couldn't afford expensive products. So we had to develop low-end products for them, low-price products. So what I had to learn was branding, product differentiation across multiple markets, and then how to build out distribution systems across the markets. And that's very different from running factories and running operations. It's really the other side of business. And so, you know, I had to kind of learn from making mistakes and, and just trying to be humble. Yeah, I take it they're probably, you probably, dealt, they're just kind of relied on communication because like I know I had an exchange student throughout high school that lived with me um, from China. And like, I just saw how different his entire perspective on the world was, how much different his culture was. So I couldn't imagine like managing all these different countries and products, all these different countries and trying to actually specialize the products towards those countries. So that's actually like very interesting how you're able to do that. Um, and I, you know, I, I guess you definitely learned as you went and kind of, as you said, learned from those mistakes. Yes. And the one thing about business is every culture can relate to the fact that we need to be profitable. We need to sell. We need good quality. We need well-run operations. So while everybody comes at it from different cultures and languages and backgrounds, if you can be very clear about your business objectives, that's the way everybody can become aligned together as a team. After being in London, it uh, looks like you went to Frankfurt, Germany and became the CEO of Armstrong DLW. Was it now that that was definitely I feel it sounds like another step from just running the European branch to running the entirety of a company. Yeah. Uh, could you talk about that change there. What was it like being a CEO for the first time? How you handled the pressure and responsibility and biggest takeaway from that? Experience? Sure. So I, uh, you know, eventually figured out the London job. And so that worked out in I, I, the, the chairman and CEO of our holding company asked me to become the CEO of Armstrong DLW which was a, actually it was publicly traded. It traded on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. And it was partly owned by Armstrong. And so the interesting thing about that job is we, it was built through various acquisitions. So we had a headquarters in Stuttgart, Germany, and then another headquarters for another division in outside of Amsterdam, Netherlands. So I wound up living in Frankfurt, which is halfway in between. And Every Monday morning, I would get up and drive south to Stuttgart and stay there for the week, or I would drive north to up by Amsterdam and stay there for the week, unless I was going somewhere else on an airplane. So that, that job was pretty heavy travel and trying to integrate a German and a Dutch company that um, were kind of at each other's throats in those days. Um, in terms of the pressure, you know... I think it's important to go through jobs that have increasing levels of pressure. So when I was a production supervisor, I felt a lot of pressure. When I was a planner, I felt a lot of pressure. And I would say I felt a lot of pressure as a CEO, but it was kind of the same thing. You just, you kind of build up your, your, your shell and your muscles and you learn how to, you learn how to deal with it. So then like working between those two um, places, what were some of like the decisions you were making and trying to, kind of get this company going? 
Well, I had to, the company had been in, 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 had been failing. So primarily because their products had gone out of date, we made, we made football fields. Like um, if you ever watch uh, a football game and you see them playing an artificial turf and sometimes you see that black dust fly up that um, we made those and we were the leading producer in Europe. We made, if you watch uh, European soccer, we made this, the, the fields for all the premier league soccer teams. And we made uh, for the NFL, we did the, um, we did the Packers and we did the Broncos and we did the Eagles. And, and so we did a lot of flooring like that and sports flooring and also regular old commercial, regular flooring, like what's probably in the room right there. And so we had to crank up our product development process. And, and that's one area I kind of developed expertise, which is how do you read the market and determine what kind of products to develop? And for example, we made uh, carpets that go in offices and we realized that if you look at window blinds in Paris and Amsterdam, you look at the colors and styles on those, a year later, that's what's going to be popular on carpeting. So we started getting good at reading the market and updating our product line across the company. And then to save costs, I actually had to, I actually had to close some factory lines. And the tough thing was, well, what do you do it in the Netherlands? Do you do it in Germany? Because like I say, they were kind of fighting with each other before I got there. So um, I had to be, I had to communicate well and, 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 and try to help people understand why I had to make some of those decisions. And shutting down factories is, I think the worst thing for me, you have to go there and tell everybody that we're going to shut you down and everybody's going to lose their job. And it's, it's, it's awful, but that's some of the stuff you got to do. So did you, did you have to like prepare to do that? Um, oh yeah. Repair, so, you know, so if you're going to close a factory and I, and I hate it cause I grew up in factories. I love factories, but sometimes you just have too many and you got to figure out what other factories going to make the product and make sure they're ready. And, you got to make sure you followed all the rules for how to lay people off to, so you're fair and you give them the right amount of severance and benefits. And then you got to be prepared to walk in that day and get a lot of blowback when you're standing on the stage telling everybody they're going to lose their job. It's, um, yeah, I've done it a few times and now that I'm retired, I'm, that's one thing I won't miss. You know, I'm sure that sounds really tough. Um, I want to, you mentioned um, working in about the product development um, part yeah. of the company. Um, product development is something that like really interests me, except um, one thing that I don't know, it's kind of my perspective on is it seems very like almost ambiguous where it's like very creative and you don't know exactly where you're taking the product or how you're going to develop a product. Um, and you, you mentioned like you noticed the windows in one country were going to be popular with the floors um, the next year which seems like just like a crazy connection that you wouldn't normally make. So like mm -hmm. what was kind of the process of like recognizing those things and like working on the product development? Yeah, there, there's, there's two things. One is you have to immerse yourself in your field. And that's why I said that being loyal to a company or a career is, is helpful and people that jump around a lot can be kind of shallow. So, you know, let's say you're developing flat screen televisions if you've only worked there for a couple of years, you don't have the insights and you don't know who to talk to. 
you want to be deep into the market where you're talking to lots of consumers and you're talking to customers who talk to consumers. You talk to your salespeople who are talking to customers who are talking to consumers. You're traveling the world. You're going to different technology shows. You're just you're just swimming around inside of the flat screen television market so that you almost become intuitive about what it is people like. And so then you got all those inputs coming at you. You've got tons of data coming at you. So how do you then organize it? Well, for me, and I think for a lot of people that successfully develop products, you got to determine the criteria that you're going to judge it by, right? So, you know, I'm not in the flat screen TV business, but probably the clarity of the picture, the, the, the sound quality, uh, the ability for it to integrate with home automation systems. You can't solve everything, but we always try to come up with, okay, what are the five criteria that are most important to consumers? And let's make sure we nail those. And I, you know, I think you think about Apple and Steve Jobs and all that. It, he knew that design was really important and the ability to, to have um, easy access to apps was really important. So they focused on a few really key things. And, you know, their, their speaker, their, their earphone quality is kind of cruddy. And, and he, he said, you know, that's not one of my top five. Yeah, that really makes sense. Um, and one thing that you probably saw, you can definitely speak on this a little bit, um, was just how like technology was developing throughout your career at like a very rapid pace. So like, was there kind of, did you notice that like every year where there was like new technology and kind of new things being implemented that kind of you had to take into account for your business and product development specifically too? Well, I'll tell you the, the thing that has really accelerated that makes a lot of people obsolete is the ability to sell product online, right? So when I got out of college, nobody was selling product online. And today, let's go back to our flat screen TV. If you're going to sell that online, um, you got to know how to read consumers. Um, you got to know how to reach consumers, uh, search engine optimization, for example, so that your, your product comes up at the top of the list on Google. Um, I go on all day, but that, that's an area there that's evolved the most, how to sell products over the internet and do it effectively. And so did you see that like within your specific jobs and career? Um, did you kind of have to make that shift where before you were, it was only where you would reach out to people directly and really just trying to build those relationships to now it's all online and you're all selling um, on the internet. Um, how was that like shift for you? And did you have to like make any changes to kind of keep up with it? Yeah, it, it, may, it, it made marketing people obsolete in many cases. So if you're in marketing today, you have to be an expert at that. And a lot of marketing people didn't make the shift. Um, if you're in information technology today, you have to be able to support marketing and selling online and not just be the IT person that knows how to fix the computer. And if you're really in almost any position, you got to be good at managing data because a data system underpins everything I've talked about. So more than technology on the product side, it's been technology on how we go to market that's really changed in, in my view. Yeah, you've had a lot of experience managing companies and managing different branches. 
what failures uh, were you met with and like what roadblocks and obstacles did you struggle to get past? How did you learn from these experiences and uh, how are you able to get around them and keep going? So I made a lot of mistakes and, and basically I tell the students this, we, we, basically we learn by making mistakes and the more mistakes you make when you're young, the better because you're not in the spotlight yet. But for me, the big one was I made a lot of changes. I was usually sent to problem areas or startups where you got to do a lot of change or, or start up a new business or whatever. And, you know, I found, for example, I was sent up to Northern England to fix a couple of factories and they had like 500 people and they only needed 200. And every position, because of their, their old union laws, they had like three people per job. And so we offered a retirement package, a pretty generous one. So it wasn't too bad. And like 300 people went out and took the retirement package. And the 200 people that were left were going to then run the plant in, in a lean way. And they were all qualified to do their jobs. They were all certified. But what I found out after the 300 people left, the other 200 didn't know how to do their jobs because they'd just been sitting around watching. And it was a fiasco for several months because I had to retrain everybody and we we're falling behind in customer shipments and everything. But what I learned from that is whenever you make a change, you got to dig deep in to make sure you know that you've got the talent in place to actually execute. And it's hard. It's kind of boring, but it's the real grunt work that goes into managed companies. Do the people on the job know how to do the job? So when I think about that situation, um, I definitely could see patients being extremely involved. Um, so like, how are you able to like remain patient, um, like, and show these people how to successfully like run the plant, um, and just have it work out? <laughs> yeah, I'm a very impatient person and, and I get very, very excited, but I knew, I, I knew that to be a leader, you had to present yourself as solid and consistent and not fly off the handle. So I had a lot of internal stress eating at me as I was pretending I wasn't um, excited. And I was, I was always projecting a patient, firm, steady persona, or at least I was intending to. But inside it was, um, you know, I'm lucky I never got an ulcer. Inside I was very, very stressed. <laughs> so then um, after you were working, um, kind of leading this company, um, you took, you went on to be the president actually of Fortune, um, Fortune Brands Home and Security. I think I'm correct. Um, yeah. So Fortune um, Brands is a holding company and they own lots and lots of different companies. When I was there, they owned Jim Beam for a while. They own Titleist. They're a conglomerate. And what they do is they hire presidents to come in and run the companies that they own. So when I was in Germany, they, a, a recruiter gave me a call and said, hey, we got this Thermatrue company in Ohio. Would you like to come and be the president? And I thought, you know, it's time to get back to the U.S. And I, I, I wanted to get back closer to home. So, yeah, I, I jumped and took the job at Thermatrue in Ohio. And Thermatrue makes front doors for new houses. And right when I took the job, we had the housing crisis in 2007 and everybody stopped building houses. So my first year, my sales went down 60% when I was at a new company. 
So then I take it by then you you have a good amount of experience with being in these like tough situations. How did you guys kind of refocus and get out of that crisis? Because I know 2008, I don't remember it too well. I know Michael probably doesn't, but I know so many people lost their jobs. It was, there was tons of suffering. So like, how were you guys able to kind of restructure yourselves and uh, get the company yeah. going again? It was horrendous. And I was fortunate in that the chairman said to me, hey, look, um, just make sure we come out of this as a successful company. And so that was, you know, he only said it took like five seconds for, for him to tell me that, but that support was very appreciated on my part. And so what we set about to do was just redesign the whole company. We redesigned the product line. We redesigned all of our distribution. We redesigned our supply chain. We, we actually, we went from eight factories to three. So more of that awful stuff. And we came out of it really, really strong, but it took five years of grueling work. I, I, I had enough experience where I knew that we were headed in the right direction. And we just had the confidence to keep slugging away, even though we were losing money. So when you're put in that situation and you know you have to like redesign, as you say, the whole entire company, um, kind of figure out a better direction, um, what exactly like were you doing and what were the decisions you were making that were that allowed the company to kind of be redesigned um, and stay successful? Sure. So, you know, one of them I mentioned, we had too many factories, right? And so we said with these eight factories and our sales are down 60%, no way that's going to work. So we said, all right, five, 10 years from now, if we had really, really efficient factories, how many would we need and where would we need them? And so we redesigned the factory supply chain for the future and, and, and reconfigured all of that. The, on the sales side, because the market was so bad, over half of my customers went out of business, like going bankrupt and everything. And our customers were wholesalers. So my sales manager and I traveled around the country for two years, opening up new customers and finding new customers and rebuilding our distribution maps. And I had a big map of North America on my wall. And we would sit in there every week looking at, okay, here's where we got blanks and here's where we got to go travel. And we, we just kind of put together a puzzle so that when the market came back, we had the wholesalers in place and we had the right factories in place and we had redeveloped all of our products. And so, um, and, and, you know, I mentioned the, the thing about the window blinds for front doors the leading indicator is front elevations and houses. The front elevation is what you look at from the street. And so if you see a house that's like mission style, like in California, or you see a, a, a colonial style, like you might see in Delaware, you got to look at what types of houses are being built and match those front doors to those houses. So we revamped our product line that way. So new product line, new distribution, new factories, all kind of set up for the future. And then when the orders came, like right now, they're so busy, they don't even know what's going on anymore. And they're making a lot of money. So like traveling around, did you guys have any competition that you kind of met? Um, or other companies that were kind of doing the same thing and you guys had to kind of better yourselves, whether it was through like providing better products or differentiating yourselves? Yeah, you'd go to big meetings and the, your competition would just be coming out of the boss's office and you'd see them, you know, they were in there before you. So it was it was um, it was a slugfest, and frankly, we had to cut prices sometimes 
We had to um, make promises about service levels. We had to develop products specifically that customers asked for. Um, sometimes I was practically down on my hands and knees begging customers to buy from us. It was because because every time the market went down, you know, I was firing hundreds of people. It was that that's really what got to me is if I'm not getting orders, I'm failing the company and I'm having to fire people. And so um, we were very very motivated to do whatever we could to grab customers. And I, I never worked so hard to keep customers happy as, as we did then. So in these tough situations where, like you said, like, um, you know, like the company's just losing money, um, the outlook was really just bleak. How are you able to keep hope and stay motivated and just like, like I said, stay hopeful that, that your new plan would work uh, despite, you know, the, the tough situation that just kept lasting and kept going? Well, I think that's why it helps to have incremental steps in your career, because each time you're successful, you build some confidence, right? So when I was in that London job and I didn't know how to do the job, I kind of learned by making mistakes and built up some confidence. And then I went to Germany and made more mistakes and built up confidence. And so you incrementally build upon it. And, you know, I'll go back to the first question you guys asked me about loyalty and if I had skipped around to different industries and different jobs a lot, you know, I never would have known how to do that job at Thermatru. At Thermatru, we rewired an entire entire company. And I, I wouldn't have been able to do that if I'd been kind of a shallow resume builder. And, and then, by the way, after I did it at Thermatru, I knew how to rewire a company that gave me confidence you know, for the next thing. So it's really all about think about career as building blocks, I would say. And so would you say that's like one of the key things that's kind of helped you be a successful leader is just understanding like what it really takes to kind of lead a company over an extended period of time and like being able to trust your experience um, for the future and, and know that what you're doing is on the right direction. Yes. And, and that's why you don't have to be super impatient with your career. I mean, I spent many, many years pretty low level jobs, but I was learning. And so as, as long as you're pushing yourself and taking tough assignments and learning, you can be establishing those building blocks for yourself. And you don't have to be comparing yourself to other people or, you know, do I have a big enough title yet? As long as you're learning, you build that. So now that you're retired and you're no longer working or running companies, um, Reflecting on back when you were running companies, what what were you looking for in a young aspiring professional? I always use the word catalyst. Um, you know, when we interview people, and I hired a lot of people from Purdue and lots of different colleges around the world. You'll you'll meet bright people, and they'll have good resumes, and they'll have lots of activities, and and so on, but. You're looking for somebody that's got that spark, that's got that inner drive that will take them past the challenges when they get, when you get, when you get out there and you get punched in the nose and you get knocked down, who's the person that's got the, the grit and determination as Purdue's President Daniels always talks about to get up again and, and be that catalyst. And, and so in an interview or early in people's careers, I always try to find out 
you know, not how smart this person is or how charming they are or what their experiences are, but do they have that inner drive and their character to just keep pushing forward? And you got to keep pushing forward because you make mistakes and you learn from them. But if you make mistakes and you lose confidence and you quit, it doesn't matter how smart you are. Um, so like looking for that drive, I feel like from just people I met, friends from high school and kind of just seeing how different people's personalities are, I've noticed that you don't really see that unless you get pretty close with the person and really see how they are. So like how can students or just any young aspiring professional kind of differentiate themselves and really show that they do have this drive um, outside of just like having a bunch of different activities like listed on their resume? Right. So and somebody asked me this this morning. You're sitting in an interview and you're talking to somebody who sees all kinds of students and all kinds of really nice looking resumes from nice colleges. And what we all try to do is ask the, the magic question is, Michael, Liam, tell me about a time where you were challenged, where things weren't going the way you wanted them to, where you were failing. How did you overcome that? That's the key question that they ask in an interview. And you want to be as honest as possible. And by, by being honest, you can kind of be vulnerable and talk about how it didn't go well. But here's how I reacted to that. And I definitely, I think I've gotten that on almost every single interview yeah. that I've had for anything so far. Um, and if, if like you've got a better way to ask that question, you know, that would be a good one because we're, we're all trying to figure that out. And, you know, how do you, how do you figure it out in an interview other than, than asking that, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of students are like, honestly, like, even though a lot of them know it's coming, they're unprepared for that question because especially with like a school like Purdue where kids have such a strong drive and just want to be perfect with everything they do, they almost never do have those failures. They never really recognize them and reflect on what how, what the failures that they have had uh, have kind of taught them. So I think that's like a very good point. Well, I think some kids um, have too many activities. You know, I've, I've been asked to help students with some volunteer stuff and it almost seems like they're checking the box and they're just kind of skimming. And, you know, I was on this thing, I was on this thing, but what did you really do? I, I would encourage people, I, like you guys, I would say, you know, dive deep into your podcast really, really be good at, you know, one or two things. And then when you're asked that question, and I said, be vulnerable, be honest and, 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 and show them that it kind of hurt, you know, and make them feel like, man, this kid, this, this, this candidate really did get punched in the nose. Um, and then talk about how you overcame it. It's, it's kind of an emotional question. So you got to make that emotional connection with the, with the interviewer. But I could see your point that most just want to skim over it and, you know, make it sound like it really wasn't a failure. But, you know, I became a hero at the end and it's a practice response and that's not going to fly. So you just mentioned uh, like how people tend to spread themselves too thin. If you were back in college, what would you focus your time on, your time and attention on? Well, certainly I would have, um, you know, why not? be better at organizing my time and get better grades. You know, I, I think I had like a B plus and yeah, I should have, I should have used my four years to get A's. Um, and then I was working and that, you know, that helped. I was working at, uh, over at the mall at JC Penney selling TVs and, 
in electronic equipment and sporting goods. And, and I, I'm glad I did that. I, I probably would have started doing that earlier. And then one or two activities and demonstrate some leadership in the activity, but really, really do it. And, and not just, you know, I, I, I advise a lot of student leaders and so often they, it, it almost seems like they're just doing it to put on the resume, to be honest. They don't get anything out of it. And I don't think they get much credit for it either from the interviewer. You know, that kind of leads like right into our last question um, that we ask, actually ask every guest we have on the show. Um, but one of the things that me and Michael have really noticed, um, it's one of the biggest differences between different people's drives and how they're able to achieve success um, is what someone's why is or what their purpose is. Um, and I know even though you retired, you're still lecturing, you're still advising students, you're still making a lot of change in the world and helping out um, Purdue and just beyond Purdue. Um, so David, what is your why? I really want to build up manufacturing in the heartland of the United States. So I, I know you guys are from the coast, but here you are at, at Purdue University, which is a real um, STEM technical oriented school. And, you know, look at the United States and, and so much of our strife is because good jobs have kind of disappeared, whether it's through technology or globalization. And I, I spent all my life working and leading companies that made a product. And I'd like to do everything I can to make sure in the heartland of the U.S. we're making high quality made in America products and that we're producing students at Purdue that can lead these companies and that we're showing respect for the workers who are on the front lines of these companies making the product. And so my, my career was doing that. That's part of why I came back to the U U.S. and working in Ohio and Indiana. That's what I'm focusing on in my teaching at Purdue. And then I do some volunteer at the state level in Indiana and local level in my community on, on um, technology and, and education. So that's really my, my thrust. Um, David, I think that's all we have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Uh, we really learned a lot from your story and we hope our listeners do as well. Um, for our listeners, please check us out on Instagram at expedition.success. Uh, if you would like to talk about today's episode or you have any questions or recommendations, please reach out to us on our Instagram or through our email at expedition.success.podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for listening and thank you, David. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Liam. Take care.